Hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to another episode of This Week in the New York Times, a post-progressive look at the progressive paper of record. And I've started doing this weekly. Uh, last week was my first week. And, um, I, and I looked at um, the New York Times and sort of, a, sort of a, a slightly bigger media verse included Time Magazine and a couple others in talking about how the nature of work is changing and that um, you know, the New York Times being our progressive paper is furthering this idea that work needs to be a place that accommodates the whole person and that people don't wanna become cogs in the machine anymore. And they wanna be seen and taken into account. And, um, and that, is, that is one of the projects of Green. And, um, and, and, and so I, I got some critique <laughs> that I was too easy on Green because uh, I did focus on you know, what they're bringing to the party. And so this week I will, I actually agree with that. I, I, I thought I, I should have included more of a post-progressive perspective and I will. Uh, uh, so I'm gonna get to that story and add a little bit more to it in a minute, but I just wanna start with a, a quick feel good story, which you don't really see that much in the New York Times because green, progressive uh, postmodernism is the, the, the felt sense of it, the, the emotional affect is depression and, um, and what's wrong and bleak and um, uh, no progress. And so this is something that's counter that and I love it. And I also think that it takes us into a, a new world of uh, what we might call rooted cosmopolitanism is a word you see from time to time these days or a term. And what it is, is an article about this um, pole vaulter from Sweden, who this was last Tuesday, this was the morning of the pole vaulting Olympics. And the, the title is pole vault favorite puts in the effort to be a true Swede. And it's about this young guy uh, Mondo Duplantis, what a great name, Mondo Duplantis. And I'll read just the first couple paragraphs. Mondo Duplantis was a high school freshman when his life changed. A pole vaulting prodigy from Lafayette, Louisiana, Duplantis was a couple of months from his first international competition, the 2015 World Youth Championships, when he received a recruiting call from a coach. The twist was that the coach was from the Swedish Athletic Association. He's living in Louisiana, from Sweden. And then this is Mondo, he's saying, he would call me and my parents every day going, you should compete for Sweden. We're super well organized. We're going to take care of your polls. We're going to do everything for you, Duplantis recently recalled. It sounded like a pretty good offer. Duplantis has since emerged as one of Sweden's most beloved athletes. And it talks about later in the article that in a, in a poll of 1,500 Swedes last year, he won in a landslide as the country's most popular athlete. He has endeared himself to a once skeptical public by speaking Swedish in interviews, driving Swedish cars, buying a place to live in Sweden during the summer, 
and dating a Swedish model. The two made headlines when they kissed on a live television in early July at a track meet in Stockholm and so forth and so forth. So this kid has been, you know, he's an international star, recruited to Sweden, is their pole vaulting champion off to the Olympics. And what do you know? He won the gold medal. So as they said at the end, if he wins, he'll be a super Swede. So I love that. That's a, a, a good story of um, somebody adopted it, 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 it integrates that traditional piece that we want. You know, the, the big culture wars between traditionalism, modernism, postmodernism, particularly traditionalism and postmodernity. And a post progressive or an integral view of this is to honor and get a win for all three of those. We have, there's actually earlier stages that we want to win for too, and we'll get to that. But just to keep it simple, we want to win for traditionalism. And that happens here with this kid. And he becomes a Swede, he dates the Swedish model, and he speaks Swedish, and they love him. And he becomes a Swede, and he's still international, and I love it. All right. So that's the feel-good story. <laughs> and again, last week I talked about um, this changing attitude towards work in the postmodern post view. And I focused on a special segment that the New York Times did called Essential But No Guarantees. And it's about the people who work in the um, sort of blue-collar uh, uh, the service industry jobs that kept New York's heart ticking during the pandemic. And um, I talked about how in green, we want an ever a deepening view of each other. We've come, it's called the sensitive self and we want to become ever more sensitive to each other and see each other as thou's, not it's. And we want to widen our circle of compassion so that more and more people are seen as our brothers and sisters or siblings. And, um, and that this, this special section did that. What it is, is just a collection of photographs. And, um, and then it identifies the person's name and what they're doing. And here's one again on the other side. And here's another one. I didn't really show the pictures last time. And I'm not gonna show many, there's well over a hundred. It's just pages and pages of people. But what I wanna show and this is the critique, um, is that the feeling, again, the felt sense of these photos is one of gloom and in a sense, despair. And uh, there's nothing really heroic. These people are put upon. That is the story. And that's the story you get in the mainstream media in general about healthcare workers, where in traditionalism, they would have been seen as heroic and you'd see the story about the one who, you know, shoveled his way through a mile of the snow to get to his patients. And people are held up as examples, heroic examples. And by the time we get to green, you know, that's all so corny, you know. And, um, and we need to, you know, and we, 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 we get into this. I mean, if you look at these pictures, they're, um, they're all just sort of staring blankly. You know, there's a the sort of an exhaustion to the whole thing. And so I would say, actually, there are two, there are two um, 
uh, conspicuous exceptions to that, and I want to show them because they lifted my heart. One is Jerry D. Lewis, who has a barbershop, and he smiled. They just couldn't stop him from smiling. And also Edith Clacken, who is a healthcare worker, and she's who I want doing my health care. You know. So it wasn't uh, re completely relentless, but it was pretty relentlessly depressing. And um, so if we, if we ha have a post-progressive critique of that, we would, we would just, you know, a, a real simple way of doing this is it's like they talk about, Macintosh talks about on the post-progressive post, we want to win, win, win. We want to win for the progressive view or postmodern view. We want to win for the modern view and we want a win for the traditional view. So we would want something that would capture and of course increase our sensitivity to people who are typically unseen, right? So we want that. And then we, we would want to also do what uh, modernism does so well, which first of all, believes in progress. So it might contextualize these people in terms of how it was in previous pandemics or how the service industry has changed and where they are relative to history. And there would be some metrics and, and, um, and um, uh, again, contextualization. And then again, to get a, a, a win for the traditional side, we'd wanna see these people as heroes. You know, everybody's in, everybody's part of the team. We're brothers and sisters and siblings in this greater project of America. And so you didn't get that. And you don't really get much of that from the New York Times. And that's the post-progressive critique. One way of looking at it, at least, and, and really working with it. So I wanted to hit that. And so then, yes, okay. So next, I wanted to um, spotlight a column, actually two columns that were written by veteran New York Times contributors. One is Heather Cox Richardson. And she is a, well, they did an article on her. She's been a contributor to the New York Times op-ed page. She's a uh, a history professor at Brown University. She's a historian, written several books on 18th century America. And she has, she, she, they did an article on her late last year, pointing out that she is the number one earner on Substack. And that's interesting. Substack is a sort of a private blog company where you can subscribe to people's blogs like Andrew Sullivan and Glenn Greenwald and lots of different people it tends to skew not left, but here she is. And she makes over a million dollars a year <laughs> on a column that she writes daily, which I had to check out and I did. And I liked her very much. She has a, um, she's definitely coming from a green sensibility but she also has a certain respect for history and, um, and she tells, she add, definitely adds that historical context that I'm talking, that I was talking about before. And um, so here she is, and this is a column that she wrote uh, a couple weeks ago. 
And um, it's where she comments on a New York Times op-ed written by another woman, Roxanne Gay, who is a regular contributor to the op-ed page of the New York Times. And she was, um, and Roxanne Gay was talking about the culture war online and how mean people are to each other online. And of course, this is a big issue. This is a meme that is in the air. It's like, why, are Ameri why do Americans hate each other? I saw that as a headline the other day. And so Heather Cox Richardson writes in her Substack column, she writes, I just read the New York Times piece by Roxanne Gay suggesting that people are horrible to each other online because they feel helpless against the larger forces arrayed against them. The Supreme Court, for example. My sense is a little different. It seems to me that we have become, become conditioned to approach every situation with strangers hostily, being hostile, as we have lost more and more rights as consumers against the businesses and corporations with which we do business. So every way we turn, we are fighting to reestablish actual fairness. Oh, God. I mean, I, I, I've been getting a, a, a little weary and my green alarms have been going off with Heather Cox Richardson over the last few months. And this really takes the cake for me. And, and actually both of them. The, the Roxanne Gay suggesting that people are horrible to each other because they feel helpless against larger forces like the Supreme Court. And Heather Cox Richardson saying, no, it's not that. It's that we feel lost and we've lost more rights against the businesses and corporations. And I, I get if if this passes for, you know, sophisticated commentary, it, it's disillusioning to me because just on the face of it, it's like, compared to what? Compared to the Supreme Court of the 50s or the when the, the corporations, when what was good for America, General Motors was good for America, back when we were happy? I mean, it just doesn't even pass the most simple kind of test about, so when were we better and that these forces were not arrayed against us? And if you look at history, good Lord, the way the rights we have now and the fairness that we have now is, it, it's, it, it's still much to do, but it's been tremendous progress. And um, so anyway, I it, it makes me realize that Anytime you're operating from any of these worldviews and your idea of the way things should be is based on your ideologies and worldview and that what's frustrating when you know how the world should be, it should be either faithful and, and patriotic and as in the social conservatives, or it should be rational and secular, or it should be multicultural and eco-aware of you know, all of those three different stories of how the world should be. And what's frustrating to people is that we can't get everybody else to conform to that, to our view. And I'm not sure we're any angrier about that than we ever have been, honestly. 
I think that we have a way of expressing it now and that we are in a culture war and that war is in many ways fruitful. Evolution loves war, actually. I mean, I hate to say that, and I don't love war, but it's set up that way. I mean, we fight and friend our way forward. And the social media world, the internet world is doing plenty of both. And let's not forget, as we think about how things are unraveling, how they're re-raveling in new, more complex ways where so much more is included. And this is the thing that we're doing. One of the things we're doing online. When I think of my grandfather, who was a very opinionated man, a farmer and railroad worker, and I think that he probably never really had an argument with somebody who disagreed with him politically in his whole life, really. And now we can argue with anybody we want all the time. And that's not, it feels bad, but again, evolutionarily, it's a way of checking each other and, uh, and getting criticized and cri criticizing. And yes, it's not pretty, but it is fruitful. So it, it makes me think of a, a, a paradigm that uh, I, I was very enamored by and am still actually. And it's from Scott Peck who wrote the book, The Road Less Traveled. And it was his work that he did on community building in I think the eighties or nineties. I was part of it. I went to some of his community building. Um, he would have these long weekends and people would sit in a circle and do this community building that was quite powerful. And he mapped community building as happening in four different segments in a continuum of four, four stages. One is pseudo-community. And that's when, you know, we don't agree with each other necessarily, but that's not that important. It's like when my cousins and I were kids, we were all, you know, we all agreed enough on everything. And then as we became more and more aware, we become politically um, separated and that has happened and that happens to a lot of people. But that pseudo community is a, is a very functional stage where at least we get along, but it's an ignorant stage. It's a, it's a fused stage that needs to grow. And the second stage out of pseudo community is conflict. And that's when we fight each other and we you know do what we're doing online. And three is emptiness. That's the third stage. And that's when we realize that we're not going to be able to make everybody agree with us. And this is the stage that I think, you know, Heldon Cox, uh, Heather Cox Richardson and Roxanne Gay are talking about. And it's, it is, it's depressing. And that is a stage of development. And then the next stage is authentic community. When we realize, hey, wait a second, we're still all here in the same family. And we got to just uh, get on with things and actually get curious about each other and not be quite so um, identified by our own worldviews. And this is integral. Integral has, is the space within which worldviews arise. And there's, you know, it's, it, there's a less and less friction. And we can see them all and see the benefits of them all and see that the mean part of all of them is the part that wants the rest of the world to conform to them. And we see that in green progressivism and we see it in uh, classic liberalism and uh, materialism.
And of course, we see it in traditionalism where, you know, my God is the one God. So welcome to human evolution at this stage of development. And I think that one of the best examples of this, this, this second and third stage, so pseudo-community, conflict, emptiness, authentic community, those are the four stages, that conflict is this, what's happening a lot on the, um, on the internet and, and uh, the, the, the comment sections and Twitter and so forth. And it, it is, I do notice it myself. I, I notice, I've been getting on Twitter more and more and I've been noticing two things about it. One is it's addictive. It is hard to stop. I mean, I'll think I'll do five more minutes and it's 15 minutes passes. So there's that. And the second thing is when I'm done, I feel depressed and enervated in the sense of my nervous system has been overactive. And, and that is the nature of war. I'm, I'm sure it would be the same thing if I went to an actual war zone. And there are many in this world still to this day and see the destruction that human beings can wreak on each other. So, you know, this is real life and this is, we are in a culture war and it is tough. And so Roxane Gay talks about it. I think there's a couple paragraphs here that I would share because I think she says it very well. She's talking about Twitter and she says, here's how it works. One person makes a statement. Others take issue with some aspect of that statement or they make note of every circumstance the original statement did not account for, or they misrepresent the original statement and extrapolate it to a broader issue in which they are deeply invested, or they take a singular instance of something and conflate it with a massive cultural trend, or they bring up something ridiculous that someone said more than a decade ago as confirmation of who knows, or Someone popular gets too close to the sun and suddenly can do nothing right. Likes are analyzed obsessively as if clicking a button on social media is representative of an entire ideology. If a mistake is made, it becomes immediate proof of being beyond redemption. Or if the person is held mildly accountable for a mistake, a chorus rends her or his garments in distress decrying the inhumanity of cancel culture, and on and on and on. She has a, that's a very, very good um, uh, column that I disagree. I mean, again, it's not, we're not bad. We haven't done anything wrong. We're growing up. Humanity's growing up and we're arguing with each other. We're testing out our ideologies. Our progeny, our future ancestors, will look back on this era as the age of ideology, the age of persona, and we will be beyond that. And uh, so, but this is happening, this is the stage that we're at. And so she describes that second stage conflict very well. And then uh, I, I noticed a uh, column from David Brooks last week, where he talked about really the third stage, the stage of emptiness that he so often chronicles in his columns. And I, he did a new article in the Atlantic about what went wrong with the boomers that I haven't read yet, but I will, I'm looking forward to it. Because I, again, I, his, his take is that we've gone wrong. We've, we're off the rails. And 
here's what he wrote. This is a column called What's Ripping American Families Apart? And it starts with um, studies on a, a phenomena that I think many of us are aware of and maybe even participating in. And that is a, a, a rise in family estrangement where people are estranged from their families. And um, he writes, the most common form of estrangement is between adult children and one or both parents, a cut usually initiated by the child. And he talks about a book called Fault Lines, Fractured Families and How to Mend Them. Uh, the, the author Carl Pillimer writes that the children in these cases often cite harsh parenting, parental favoritism, divorce and poor and increasingly hostile communications often building to a volcanic event. As one, one woman wrote, I have someone out to get me and it's my mother. My part of being a good mom has been getting my son away from my own mother. The parents in these cases are often completely bewildered by the accusations. They often remember a totally different childhood home and accuse their children of rewriting what happened. As one cutoff, couple, one cutoff couple said, emotional abuse, we gave our child everything. We read every parenting book under the sun, took her on wonderful vacations and went to all of her sporting events. So he talks about that there, the problem is this definition of abuse and that basically there's a generational shift in what constitutes abuse, constitutes abuse. Practices that seemed like normal parenting to one generation are conceptualized as abusive, overbearing, and traumatizing to another. And that's so true. You know, I think of my parents, uh, particularly my mother, and I, I had a small grudge for a short while about how my mother, you know, I think when I was a teenager that she didn't, wasn't even aware of my interior states. You know, she wasn't interested. She was interested in getting me off to college. She was interested in what I did, not how I felt. And, um, and I realized later in life, she wasn't that interested in that in her own life either. You know, she wasn't that concerned about her own internal states. And this is generational. You know, again, the sensitive self comes online and reinterprets history. So that's part of what's happening is just, again, this growing up into this postmodern sensitivity that is, you know, can become quite maudlin and quite narcissistic and, you know, does. We see it in people that we know, I'm sure, I do. Um, he talks about the psychological unraveling of America, which has become an emerging theme of his column, which is true. Terrible trends are everywhere. Major depression rates among youth aged 12 to 17 rose by almost 63% between, between 2013 and 2016. All right, I have to question that statistic. I just do. Uh, the major depression rates between of kids 12 to 17 rising 63% in three years. That sounds like a, a redefinition of major depression, which I would have counted myself as when I was between 12 and 17, at least for a few of those years. 
I, I was aware of it myself, but there was no option. I still had to get up and do things. So um, he goes on, oh, then he goes on and he says, American suicide rates Suicide rates increased by 33% between 1999 and 2019. That's 20 years. The percentage of Americans, and these are, here's a couple heartbreaking statistics. The percentage of Americans who say they have no close friends has quadrupled since 1990. 54% of Americans report sometimes or always feeling that no one knows them well. And that is a sad thing. And then his next paragraph, I confess, I don't understand what's happening and what's causing this, but social pain and vulnerability are affecting everything, our families, schools, politics, and even our sports. And again, I would say that this is a description of uh, the emptiness that happens. And it's when you're at a stage of development where you've lost your religion, so we're just we're, we're accidents of protoplasm. So that's modernity. That's what rationality brought to the party. It's, I mean, as, as well as the modern world, we, you know, integral, we want to see both. But the losing of our religion has been a very significant, you know, it's depressing. You know, you don't have any reason. You, what, what's going on here? Why am I here? And then the, um, if you get to, um, post-modernity where it's, um, you know, there's no progress at all, then it is a depressing stage. And that's where we're at in terms of our development. Uh, at least this, you know, sort of leading edge, if you will, in a world that would incidentally be seen as a heaven realm, a God realm to our ancestors where we have enough to eat and you can walk around and you don't have to fight and there's place to sleep and there's air conditioning. I mean, this would be seen materially as a heaven realm, but meaning has been sucked out of it. And that is a, you know, that's a, I don't know if it's a problem, it's a stage of development with problematic aspects. Uh, David Brooks writes in a nod to this sort of political conflict is arising everywhere. He says, a friend of mine notes that politics has begun to feel like an arena where many people can process and regulate their emotional turmoil indirectly. Anxiety, depression, and anger are hard to deal with within the tangled intimacy of family life. But, but political tribalism becomes a mechanism with which people can shore themselves up, vanquish shame, fight for righteousness, and find a sense of belonging. And I do think that's true and that people are retribing on the internet, finding their tribe all over the world, integrals one in a sense. And, you know, again, welcome to the evolution of culture and consciousness. He does end on a, uh, a sort of upbeat note, I guess you could say, and one that, hits me and I think will probably hit some of you uh, in the heart. And that's uh, by referring to the Franciscan friar, Richard Rohr, who has been to many integral events and is an integral sympathizer. And he wrote, and this is how David Brooks ended the column. He says, as the Franciscan friar, Richard Rohr wisely wrote, if we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly 
transmute it. I'm sorry. If we do not transform our pain, we will most assuredly transmit it. And so that transmutation, that transformation of pain is part of the project. And, uh, you know, if anybody who has done any spiritual exercise, and you know, this is where Richard Rohr goes with that, is um, trans, uh, transforming pain is done by feeling it and uh, not turning away from it. And uh, uh, so, um, so I, I, I want to end with a poem that I think gets to this. And it's by one of my favorite poets, Robert Frost. And it's about not just transforming the dark or the pain, but actually choosing to what degree do we want to engage it even in our lives. And this is a, a poem called Come In, and it's about the dark. Uh, often seen, the dark is often seen in, in interpretations of the poem as death, but it's really any of these um, tangled dark webs that we can, you know, that we face in life. And it's um, five short stanzas, and here it is. I love it. It's called Come In by Robert Frost. As I came to the edge of the woods, thrush music, hark. Now, if it was dusk outside, inside it was dark. Too dark in the woods for a bird by sleight of wing to better its perch for the night, though it still could sing. The last of the light of the sun that had died in the west still lived for one song more in a thrush's breast. Far in the pillared dark, thrush music went, almost like a call to come in to the dark and lament. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I mean, not even if asked, and I hadn't been. I love that last stanza. But no, I was out for stars. I would not come in. I mean, not even if asked, and I hadn't been. Love that Robert Frost. All right. Well, I guess it went a little over, but all good. And thank you for tuning in to This Week in the New York Times. Check back next time, 11 o'clock a.m. Mountain Time. That's 12, 1, 1 Eastern Time. Yeah, exactly. And so forth. And I'll be here every week on the Post-Progressive um, Facebook group. And it's posted also in the post-progressive post, which I encourage you to check out. And all of the new, new cool stuff that is going on at the Institute for Cultural Evolution. And I'm happy to support that and hope you uh, consider it as well. All right, thanks folks. See you next time. <laughs>